we've got we've got a lot to talk about. It's a pretty pretty action-packed week. Mike, I'm so confident it's going to be 75 basis points that if it's 100 basis points, I'm going to eat grass on camera for the pleasure of, of our viewers. Yeah, it's kind of like the Super Bowl for, for central banks. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stablecoins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. All right, everyone, we are back for another episode of Forward Marginal Guidance. I'm joined, <laughs> as you know by that name, by my colleague, Jack Farley. Jack, welcome back, buddy. We've got we've got a lot to talk about. It's a pretty, pretty action-packed week. It certainly is. Some are calling it even Central Bank Mega Week. Yes. So let's see. I think uh, it was Nick Glinsman who wrote that over 500 basis points of hikes are going to happen. Uh, let's see. So tomorrow, uh, Sweden will kick us off. Good old Bank of Sweden. We love that. Uh, they're going to hike by 75 basis points. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will have their FOMC meeting. Powell will, will go out. It'll be a fun day. Uh, that's expected to be seven, 75 basis points. Currently, the market's assigning like an 80% weighting to 75 basis points and a 20% weighting to 100 basis points. Uh, I'm in the camp, Mike, I'm so confident it's going to be 75 basis points that if it's 100 basis points, I'm going to eat grass on camera for the pleasure of, of our viewers. Um, Brazil, the, uh, the Bank of Brazil will uh, not hike interest rates on Wednesday. They're already at 13.75. They're kind of like the early adopters, you know. Uh, then Bank of England, I think, will also do 75 or was it 50 on Thursday? Swiss, Na Swiss National Bank. So, yeah, it's kind of like the Super Bowl for, for central banks. Certainly. And for those of you who are following along on video here, we've actually got a Bloomberg put together a helpful little map, actually, of where these rate hike uh, rate decisions are being made. Um, and you can see they break it out Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. This is obviously going to be airing on Wednesday. But I think I think we can still talk about, Jack, what the implications are. Basically, there's a you know unanimous consensus, right? The central banks are raising. Maybe on the lower end, we've got Brazil. Uh, and on the higher end, we've got the United States. But basically, the consensus here is that banks are going to be raising all around, right? And I think I think the the question that that I certainly have is have you know with all of this these 500 collective basis points of of raises where where are economies at, right? Because you and I we had this conference at DAS uh, last week. There was some great crypto content. There was some really great macro content. And kind of the consensus view among our macro panelists was that we've actually already started to see disinflationary, if not outright deflationary, trends start to pop up at least in the US-based economy. So I guess my question to you is, what's your take on all of these hikes that are about to be priced in when we've already seen economic data starting to turn? Mm, great question. I think for the US and Europe, inflation is so high that these hikes are, at least for now in my, you know, what do I know, opinion, warranted. I will say that in preparation for this talk, just reading some of the more recent economic literature, like from the IMF, from the World Bank. Uh, growth forecasts look extremely, extremely poor. I think actually growth, economic growth in the UK in 2023 is going to be negative, which is truly stunning. And I believe that is a nominal figure. So you have negative real, you have negative nominal growth. On top of that, you're, presumably you're going to have some form of inflation. Is it going to be the 10% we're seeing now? P perhaps it's going to be lower. Uh, it's, it's, not looking, it's not looking great. One really interesting point that Juliet DeClerc made, and I know we're going to get into this later. She gave a fantastic, I got to give Grant Williams a plug. Uh, you know, did a fantastic interview with, with Juliet, who actually makes the case for, who actually makes the very controversial case for a soft landing, was that in the same way that, you know, 
forward guidance is basically being used as a tool and and the Fed wasn't saying, hey, you know, we are uh, we're going to start raising rates and they were way behind the curve. We're now taking Powell and central banks at their word that there's going to be continued hawkishness. Right. So I think there's good. I think there's pretty good. You could pretty safely assume, right, that if, if you don't if you don't take the forward guidance and everything that the Fed says exactly at their word, you know, nine months ago, you shouldn't necessarily be weighing that that heavily into it now. I don't know what you think about that take. That's right. That one case for a soft landing is that the Federal Reserve pivots sooner than is currently priced in the market. I should say the two-year yield, treasury yield is now at an extremely high point relative to, to what we, we are used to of like 3.95%. I believe the terminal Fed funds rate, so how high the market uh, thinks is the highest point the Fed will go is just shy of 3.5%, I think in April of 2023. And it's forecasted to stay there higher for longer. Although you do see about 50 basis points of cuts uh, out in the way until 24, like on a, on a probability sort of weighted uh, uh, distribution. So that's one case for the soft landing. The Fed pivots sooner than is priced into the market. And I would say that is not my base case. I think on Wednesday, the Fed will hike by 75 basis points, which is, quote, less than the market's expecting because it's expecting a 20% uh, chance of 100 basis points. And I, I can explain why in a bit. I actually, uh, by the way, thanks. Yeah, fantastic interview with uh, Juliet DeClerc. Thanks for recommending it. I think Juliet's her base case for a soft landing is that inflation will fall naturally or by itself, and that growth will be sufficiently robust so that the hikes that are priced into the forward interest rate curve are uh, will will be realized, and uh, the, in other words, the economy can can take it. Um, yeah. So this is a chart from uh, the World Bank report entitled "Is a Global Recession Imminent," uh, which came out very recently. And you can see that the in the red line is uh, economists' expectations of inflation, global inflation, over the course of this year, and the blue line. Uh, is economists' forecast of growth. So economists' forecast of growth has flatlined while economists' expectations of inflation has exploded higher. This is pretty much a textbook definition of stagflation. Um, yeah, so I, I want to get into Julius de Klerk's th thinking, but uh, let me just quickly ex explain why I think 75 basis points is, is coming, is that the Federal Reserve... Fed Chair Jay Powell in particular, is very reticent to shock the markets. When he likes to, sh when, when he shocks the market and shocking the market is necessary, he likes to let the market know that they will be shocked. And we have up until this point not had that uh, piece. And, uh, you know, Nick Timoros, who has a very good uh, uh, sourcing, uh, uh, he has not come out with an article saying that 100 basis points... That's a very funny way of phrasing. He's got very good sourcing. He Certainly has does. he has very very good sourcing. Yes, uh, <laughs> and I think that seventy five basis points is the base case of the market seventy percent eighty percent. And if Fed wanted to, the market to change that, they would uh, not want to have the market surprised, and they would uh, let they would let let it be known prior that a uh, hundred basis points is coming. So we haven't had that. So yeah, and I and I think um, you know. Don't mistake what I'm about to say for like medium-term or long-term bullishness on anything, but I think we could be set up for a sort of rally just because what will be priced in uh, a 20% chance of a uh, uh, hundred a full point cut won't happen. Now a lot of people are saying that, so that might be consensus, and 
you know, as Mike Green and Harley Bassman remind us, sort of interest rate futures, bonds, commodities, they don't really tell us anything. Like the mm. bond market does not exist to give you a macro framework that you can, you know, make, you know, make, make uh, so that you can make forecasts. Um, it really is a condition of people basing a hedging. So in other words, people could uh, be like, they have to have a lot of risk assets, stocks, crypto, commodities, everything. And really anything that's not like money, <laughs> anything that's nominated in money and anything that's not money. And they might want to protect against that. So they would buy uh, Fed funds futures to protect against a 100 basis point rally, in other words. So yeah, that's sort of my, my thinking. And that's why I will eat grass uh, on camera uh, if, if it is a 100 basis point hike. You know, just just while we're on the, the position of taking controversial opinions on this podcast, I, I think you could actually make a pretty good case that the Fed kind of deserves a little bit of a pat on the back because if if you were viewing this, we you know we spoke to Danielle on on the last um, you know the, mm -hmm. at this last week's interview, and we talked about the Fed trying to get some of its monetary toolkit back, right? And I think the Fed has actually done a pretty good job of getting that toolkit back in that they've raised rates, right? The market now fully expects, right? The terminal rate or whatever it is, like 4% or something like that. I actually thought Fed fund futures were above four, like to four and a half percent or something in April of this coming year. But whatever it is, we're hovering around that 4% mark, which, you know, even six months ago was, was unthinkable, right? And at the same time, they've hiked rates this aggressively. You know, the S&P is only 20 so, 20 some odd percent off the highs, right? Unemployment is still basically at, if not historic lows, certainly generational lows, right? At sub 4%. They've kind of got their wiggle room, right? I think they've done a pretty good job of actually raising rates pretty quickly while maintaining some wiggle room while there certainly is room on the both the price stability side of things and the, uh, the unemployment side of things. So I know people hate giving the Fed any sort of credit whatsoever, but, you know, they haven't told. I mean, they they they've certainly reacted too late uh, in in dealing yeah. with inflation, but they're not setting. They're not. Uh, they're, they could be at a worse. They could be at a worse position. I think. I yeah, it's my case that yes, the Federal Reserve was way behind the curve in 2021, and they essentially tied their their hands with flexible average in inflation targeting in 2020, which really prevented them their ability to act in an expeditious manner. But I would say, like, if you sort of say the big bang is January 1st and uh, the world starts on January 1st and sort of Jay Powell on the Fed inherits its prior mistakes. I would also, I would give the Federal Reserve uh, relatively high marks. Um, folks can, can think I'm biased because I have a, my podcast is, is named after central bank uh, uh, technique. Uh, it is what it is. What else was I going to say? Oh yeah, I, I actually did an interview that, that aired today where uh, Ted, Ted Oakley, who's very bearish on, on stocks, uh, and he said that he's took quite a harsh uh, view of the Federal Reserve. And I wanted to, you know, be diplomatic, be a classic journalist, and I'd be like, "Okay, Ted, but would you say that they've done a better job this year? Like, would you give them that?" And Ted was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> wow, sparing no, sparing no, sparing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, it's certainly very easy to, and and you know, the the sort of criticism of the, of the Fed is they got kind of whipsawed both ways on this, right? Is that they were correct, but ultimately early to transitory narrative, right? So they kept their foot on the gas for far too long. They were looking in the rear view mirror then, then, and now they're going to get whipsawed in the other direction where they're continuing to tighten and they're looking at these very lagging indicators of both CPI and the unemployment rate, which again are very, very lagging indicators. And they're going to keep tightening, keep raising rates, uh, even though the 
you know, the economic momentum has, has already turned in the U.S. And I think, I, I guess what I, what I think about that is ultimately if what the Fed has to do is get ahead of these sorts of things, then, then we've got a system that's set up to fail, right? Like the Fed is this big monolithic institution that, that can't take risk, right? They're not going to be out ahead of the risk or kind of anticipate where the market is going. I just, if, if that's what we need is, is a forward looking Fed, then yeah, we're kind of setting ourselves up to fail, I suppose. But yeah, just just to ex- explain what 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 you mean for the audience. So mm. there are widely embraced tools that macro investors and market observers look at that have a actually extremely good track record of predicting economic growth, like uh, inverted yield curves, or uh, you know, looking at PMIs. Like P- PMIs will tell mm. you what the unemployment rate will be. You know, three, six, twelve months from now. So the Federal Reserve, by looking at and uh, weighting primarily the unemployment rate, which is the last thing to move, they will almost by definition be be behind the curve. Uh, but yeah, now let's let's go into the ch- the chart that you made uh, f- based on Juliet's work. It's it's very hard because basically everyone was so wrong on this for such a long period of time that um, that yeah, I think you take all of these these surveys with a pretty big grain of salt. But I think there's I I, I kind of want to start just voicing because it's just so the the pitch of doom and gloom recently has been so high that I, I do think there are more positive stories out there and not all economic data that we see not all survey data that we see supports this idea that there's some sort of great depression uh you know market implosion right around the corner and i think the more you see inflation expectations come down the more you see commodity prices go down and honestly god willing if we had you know, some sort of ceasefire or, or mm-hmm. ceasing with the geopolitical conflict over in Europe, I think you could start to see the narrative turn pretty quickly. Yeah. So you said you got to take these surveys with a grain of salt. For folks who are listening, we see the University of Michigan five to 10 year uh, inflation expectations dip down slightly. And we're seeing the one year dip down slightly as well. I take these with a huge grain of salt. Uh, the I feel like asking, you know, sort of man on the street, woman on the street, calling them calling them up and asking them, hey, Mike, what do you think inflation will be over the next five to 10 years? That The answer that you're going to get is like barely more accurate than if you ask someone on the street, you know, what do you think the price of Bitcoin will be in 2029? It's like, it's, it's so unknowable. And also it's shaped by people's perceptions. Like I'll give you, you know, if you asked someone a year ago, on the street, what do you think the price of Bitcoin would be? They would probably, you know, they'd say half a million dollars. And now they'd say $2,000. You know, it's, it's sentiment varies so widely and it's so oriented on past conditions. I mean, talk about, we were talking about how the Federal Reserve is behind the curve because they're looking at primarily the unemployment rate, the labor market. I mean, look at this chart. On the left, we've got five to 10 year University of Michigan inflation expectations. It peaked in 2008 when in, when uh, inflation was at its local high in maybe the summer, early summer of 2020, 2008. But then obviously you had a worldwide extreme recession that actually caused deflation. And then in 2009, what did they forecast? They forecasted low inflation. Um, mm. And yeah, it's, it's, I, I, first of all, I don't have a ton of faith in economists' ability to forecast this. But yeah, the, no. the average person, I think uh, their ability to forecast inflation, like my ability to forecast inflation, is very weak, and also, oh, okay, Jack, you don't like you don't like the surveys. Do you like? But what about the tips yields, the, the inflation break evens that are implied by the Treasury inflation protected security rates? I don't really take those 
I take those with a grain of salt as well because you know the Federal Reserve owns like a quarter of them, and they're used yep. as, as hedging tools. Say, just under thirty percent. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're used like as hedging tools uh, by investors. So that's my rant. Here's here's one thing that maybe where maybe the inflation expectations is a little bit different than what is the price of Bitcoin going to be? Because I agree that the average person on the street doesn't have great predictive power for, to answer either one of those questions. But inflation is in some senses a psychological yes. phenomenon, right? Is a, It is a collective belief that prices are going to be higher tomorrow than they are today. So what this, what I think it would be much more concerning if we were looking at the inverse of these two charts and generally the population believed that inflation was going to be higher five to 10 years from now than it is one year from now, because that would that would tell me that this in, that this idea of inflation being psychologically baked into the population is is just that it's deeper, right? Where, whereas these two, these two charts taken together say, yeah, people understand that inflation is going on today, but in general, they think it's going to be less five to 10 years from now and more one year from now, which is kind of what you'd like to see, right? So people generally, even though People aren't happy about it. They're viewing it as something of a temporary phenomenon, which probably just means it's less baked in. Yeah, I, I think these things matters for two things on the longer term, because inflationary psychology can become embedded. Um, and then on the second term, because the Federal Reserve pays a lot of attention to that because they think they believe in this sort of embedded uh, inflationary psychology uh, theory. Hmm. Here's the other thing that we know. I want to skip a little bit of a head here and just yeah. talk about treasury market depth, because we know that the Federal Reserve pays an enormous amount of attention, right, to, let's call it normally functioning of the treasury market. That was that was certainly what they cited back in 2020, when, again, it wasn't, you know, the Fed didn't jump into markets and say, hey, we're really concerned about what the S&P is doing, or the NASDAQ are doing, or asset prices writ large. They were concerned about liquidity in the treasury market. So, you know, Again, what what we're seeing here, and I think this is a chart that that yeah. comes to us from Nick Linsman, but that actually, actually comes from Joseph see. Wang. It comes from uh, Joseph Wang, Fed Guy Twelve. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, great. Then uh, yeah, why don't, why don't you just because uh, you sent this chart over, Jack? Why don't you just walk us through what we're looking at here? Why it's important? Okay, so I've never traded you know a hundred million dollars of Treasury futures or uh, uh, cash bonds in in my life, but this essentially measures. Treasury, treasury market depth <laughs> and higher on the chart means more liquidity, means, oh, you want to buy or sell a lot of bonds. It's going to be easier for you to do it. The brokers are going to pick up your call. They're going to charge you a lower spread because they have uh, more ample warehousing of these securities on their books. Oh, Mike, you want to sell it? I got you. I know a buyer. Let's make a deal. Boom, bang, boom. That's the top. That's the high on the chart. Low on the chart means that... It is tough to sell, uh, and it's it's the opposite. You get charged a higher spread. The broker, you're going to have to wait on the phone, on the phone call, um, stuff like that. And the I guess the apogee of this was in March of 2020 when we had this worldwide recession. Everything was crashing. Every risk asset was crashing hard. When growth falls off a cliff, inflation expectations falls off a cliff, risk assets plummet. What do you expect to do well? 10-year treasury notes, 30-year treasury bonds, but they weren't. They actually crashed as well because the market essentially treated them like they were a risk asset. And uh, some opine, theorized, that that is what really drove the Federal Reserve to do not just QE, but to do QE on on steroids. QE on steroids on steroids. Um, mm -hmm. Is that going to break? I. This is tough because... In March of 2020, the market wasn't functioning because 
uh, treasuries, securities were selling off when they should have been rallying, according to all economic logic. But now they sh- the sell-off that we see is can be justified by uh, economic fundamentals. So I don't really know what a collapse in the treasury market is. I, and, and I don't really have a, fr- a quantitative framework for measuring that. I do know that we are just past a three-year anniversary of the uh, repo crisis in 2019, which caused uh, repo rates to, to spike extremely high. The Federal Reserve supposedly... It, it, they have a they have a facility, the repo facility. I think it does five hundred billion dollars. That's the maximum that it can do. And Joseph Wang says, if they need to do more, they'll just change it and do more, where they can essentially contain that market. So, when people talk about something breaking, um, it's it's tough to imagine what that would be, other than the economy or very vanilla assets, like let's say high yield high yield credit or something like that. But uh, in terms of the plumbing, I don't. You know, I, I don't think that we are at the point yet where things are, quote, breaking. No, but I think this is just the, the reason why I think it's important to look at this chart is it's just one more thing that we know that the Fed pays a lot of attention to, right, when they're measuring stress. So, you know, it, it again, we've said a lot on this show, but people tend to focus on the stock market, right, as, as something that's kind of be all end all important, right, because people tend to own a lot of stocks. But the treasury market is something that's ex- extremely important to the Fed when they're trying to consider have we taken our the current trajectory of our policies of hiking too far, right? And right now it looks like, you know, it looks like we're we're nearing lows, right, in terms of liquidity. But it also doesn't seem like the rate of change is aggressively steep either. So you know, when you saw that again, the the apogee, great vocab word there, back in back in March twenty twenty, there was an enormously steep rate of change, and and it does it seems like it's more of a gradual slow walk down and, and rate of trains, I think, extremely important when it comes to these sorts of things. So yeah. I, I think it's just one more data point for for how much stress the Fed feels like they're under. And I would wager, I don't I, I don't think Jerome Powell is looking out there into the world and saying the world is breaking right now because of our policies. I think largely they, they've pretty much swallowed, you know, these Federal Reserve price hikes and nothing appears, things are straining, but I, I, it doesn't seem like anything's breaking at the current time. Yes, I think that the stress that you've seen in industries has been quite localized to interest rate sensitive sectors. So, you know, when interest rates are at zero and money is free, everyone wants to all the companies want to borrow, all the investors want to buy. Let's hire all these people straight out of school. You know, we'll do, you know, 100 billion dollars in volumes. Oh, by the way, the investors also want to buy SPACs. They want to buy everything. That is definitely slowing down. Likewise, the same for housing. Uh, I'm much, you know, I don't know how exactly how I feel about the housing market in terms of housing prices, but in terms of the mortgage industry, uh, that is, you know, originations are down over over fifty percent. Depends on how you measure it. So I think a lot of the pain has been localized to like extremely hyper uh, 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 focused sectors, but we haven't seen that pain in the labor market. Um, but again, I get looking at some of these doomsday charts, I get pretty um, worried about the economy. So I, I think if you guys had to ask me, what do you think was well, something that breaks? I, I think it would have to be the economy. And by the way, for something to break to matter, it has to be something that the Federal Reserve cares about, right? You know, like, oh, the SPAC market is underwater. The SPAC market is broken. The Federal Reserve does not care about that. That's not uh, within its, its mandate. Um um, yeah, and I just I just want to comment on how uh, sort of doomsday grim the language is coming 
out of the World Bank. Again, the name of the report is, is a global recession imminent? And this is just a, a quote. Uh, the specter of a global recession has increasingly haunted policymakers as they observe the rapid deterioration of growth prospects amid rising inflation. It, it's very, you know, like a, a horror novel or like a sort of a death metal lyric, like using words like haunted. You know, these are these are economists who typically are quite dry in the language that they use. Uh, so I think that the economics profession generally is uh, seriously going to be worried about growth a lot more, and they already are, than they were three months ago. Yes, I know three months ago, you know, if you said that we weren't already in a recession, everyone on Twitter called you an idiot. And that sort of, you know, the the sort of uh, people less in the mainstream economics profession sort of front ran economists and, and were right. Uh, but I think that growth scares uh, will be will be serious uh, going forward. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance, and as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust, I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner, helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exec team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. Maybe we can speculate a little bit here on the back of the, the interview that Juliet gave and just let's ask ourselves, let's, let's continue. Let's basically, let's take your and my minds to December of this past year, right? And let's look at a couple of the trends that we've talked about on this podcast, but also that Juliet kind of lays out in this, in this chart here. So inflation peaked in the US back in June of this year. We had a 9.1% headline CPI handle. Currently we're at 8.3. Nobody liked the last you know, August's data for, for CPI because everyone was very concerned that it was 8.3 instead of the 8.1 that we we're expecting. But as the White House has pointed out to much mocking, right, on the internet, the, the pace has certainly slowed, right? They are right in saying that the pace is slowed. It's a little, it seems a little stupid of them to die on the hill of technicalities, which is how it comes off, but they are correct that, it, you know, inflation has decelerated, certainly. So let's play ourselves out and then let's, let's pay, let's, pull two more trends out that we already know are kind of in the work. Let's look at housing and let's look at unemployment, right? So let's say it's December of this year and these trends continue on the current trajectory that they're on. Let's say inflation has fallen down to, let's say headline CPI is somewhere around six and a half percent, right? Let's say it keeps on this kind of trajectory that it's currently on. Let's say the housing market has turned, right? And these rising mortgage rates has finally it's it's starting to play out in the price of homes and we're stopping to see these like crazy lines of people that are waiting to buy, you know, housing at, at sight unseen, 20% increases over the asking price. And instead, housing prices have started to decline. And let's say 
the current unemployment rate, which is around 3.7%, let's say that jumps to about 4.5%. And let's say the stock market is off 10 to 15% from what it is right now. In that environment, I think you could pretty – and those are all like very realistic things to happen on the current hiking cycle. And then say the Fed has hiked you know, from the you – know, they've gotten it from Fed funds expectations from 4%. Let's say it's not two, two more 75 basis, basis points, but let's say it's two more 50% uh, basis points. I don't know. I think in that world, you can – investors will pretty clearly say, hey, maybe we have gotten inflation under control. Maybe we have taken enough pain as the economy really needs to see. And then you start looking for upward type momentum, right? And and if if all of those things happen, right? If basically all of the the indicators that we look at for the health of an economy started to move in the other direction, the way I just described, basically what you're describing is a reversion to the mean. You know, in terms of those, that would bring unemployment up to somewhere where it's pretty healthy. You know, four point five was the theorized that was full employment, right? For a long period of time, we are below. We are <laughs> more employed than economists thought was even possible before that's sub 4.5%. So I don't know. I know it's really bearish out there, but I actually can see a world where basically if the trends just continue to play out over the next couple months on the current trajectory that they're already playing out, we're kind of setting the stage for, you know, maybe, maybe it's, you know, chopping sideways or it could even be a reversal in narratives and the Fed can say, hey, maybe we've done our job. I don't know. What do you think? So it's an interesting case, compelling case that you make. I would agree with you if we move the argument away from risk assets, like let's just say stocks. And so instead of saying stocks are going to do okay, they might sell off 10%, but you know, they're a buy, they're a buy at these levels. If instead of saying that, you said what is kind of an inverse or converse, whatever, uh, which is that short-term interest rates have peaked. You know, we're we're close to four percent on the two-year Treasury note. That's going to be the top, and the you know, four and a half Fed funds rate. That's the, the terminal rate. That's going to be the you know that's going to be the top. We're not getting to Zoltan's six percent scenario. Uh, if you said that, I would agree with you, and I'd say the odds of that are probably greater than fifty percent. I, I I would agree with you. I feel like with risk assets, there's so much volatility, and I'd also say that you could make the argument that particularly stocks have fared better than they uh quote should have should is doing a lot of work there dangerous word but given the rise in risk free rates um you know the equity risk premia you know this is a volatile world uh the vix is at 25 which is not that high and equity risk premia sort of uh the the discount that uh stock investors demand from stocks given that Risk-free interest rates, ten-year Treasury note, two-year Treasury bill, what note, whatever, uh, is so much higher. Uh, you know, and I'm, and let me if the, if the S and P five hundred, let's say it has a PE of twenty-five, let's just say a PE of twenty, that is basically like a five percent earnings yield, right? Because it's just you divide hundred by twenty. Well, the two-year now yields four percent, and the two-year Treasury is a guaranteed thing, whereas the S and P five hundred. You're buying something that's quoted mark to market daily. It could, it could, you know, crash fifty percent in a few months. Uh, you know, obviously that's not my base case. Um, now the S and P five hundred will grow its earnings, whereas the ten year Treasury note, 30, 30 year Treasury will definitely not grow its earnings. It's a fixed income. Emphasis on the word fixed. But yeah, I could make the case that that stocks in particular uh, could go a lot lower, even as risk free interest rates remain high, or even as risk free interest rates don't increase further. I should say. 
Does that, what do you think about that? I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that makes an enormous amount of sense. One one other thing that I'd love to get your I'd love to get your take on, and that I hadn't really thought about, but really, uh, Juliet's interview here is really really carrying our interview. But she made a great point about this idea of financial repression and productive versus financial risk taking in the stock market. And if you, it, she kind of made the point where if you have higher interest rates, and that drives down the expectation for stock appreciation, then what it might actually do is limit buybacks for companies in general. Mm. So, and, you know, Yuri and Timur made this point on the panel that you did at DAS, this last DAS, right? So he kind of said, basically, everything that you've seen in the stock market so far, you know, there are two components to to pricing in stocks, which is valuation, right? So how, what is the value that they're getting on earnings and then the level of earnings themselves. And so far, primarily, what we've just seen is a reversion in terms of valuation. But if if the expectation moving forward is that stocks are not going to just continue to appreciate and the hurdle rate on capital, which is set by kind of basically the interest rate in the US is going up, then suddenly it doesn't make sense anymore for companies to buy back their own stock. And instead, what you could see is a much healthier trend, at least in my opinion, of reinvesting the capital that they're earning, not just in buying buying stocks, which would kind of be that financial risk taking component, and instead investing in new products on the margin. Does that does that argument make sense? I, I heard it laid out and I was like, you know, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but that does make a lot of sense, right? You bring up the hurdle rate on new investments in the company, you bring down the return expectation on stocks, suddenly the math doesn't work anymore to just run buybacks uh, into infinity. And what you actually might get is investment in actual R&D and and products in the S&P, which would uh, be pretty cool. I completely agree. Andy Constant made that point about quantitative easing, that part of the reason quantitative easing is so effective at boosting asset prices in the US as opposed to Japan or Europe is that uh, the stock market, the US has a very buyback culture. And yes, it makes sense. A lot of people think that, oh, Boeing, they're buying back stock with the money that they made from selling planes. And yes, that's true. But if their debt is also increasing, you could also say they're buying back stock with money that they borrowed from investors. So if they, you know, the, they're borrowing at five percent, and they're that's their cost of debt and their cost of equity, uh, which is a you know term that is very confusing to definitely to me as well as perhaps some other people, uh, is let's say uh, you know six uh, percent. It actually is, I guess, a good uh, tr- transformation. But if you suddenly you have to borrow at ten percent. Buying back your stock becomes a lot less appealing. So I, th- I think you're absolutely right, and you know this goes to just the, um, you know, the sort of business models that have become very popular in the U.S. over the past, let's say, 13 years um, in Silicon Valley, where you know instead of you and I launching a cab company and we're dri- we start off two employees, two co-founders, and we drive the, the taxis, and then we use the money that we make to hire more people and then we use that money to make to hire more people instead of that like we just get a check for 50 million dollars and it's like screw taxis taxis are so 20th century it's about networks it's about transportation it's about the fleet of the future and we're just losing you know billions of billions of billions of dollars after every year and actually people who invest with us they make money because every single round is marked higher and higher and higher yeah i think uh we could be coming to an end not an end but a uh the the end of the peak of that in terms of like rate of change if that makes sense do you see stan Druckenmiller said we might basically be range bound in terms of stocks for the next 10 years in the us 
Now, who knows, right? You know, I'm sure the caveat, that was the headline. I'm sure the caveat he gave is this is an investment advice and I'm not sure, yada, yada, I'm liable to change my mind in the next 24 hours or as soon as I see a piece of data, which disproves what I just said. But he said there's a decent possibility of that happening. What do you think, what do you think that would produce in an environment? I actually, I think you could again make the case that, that might not be such a bad thing. That's basically because, you know, stocks, they can revert in terms of price or they can revert in terms of time. And maybe time wouldn't be such a bad way to revert. Mm. Yeah. In other words, the, the capital market appreciation of stocks over the past decade has just priced in the, f- the next decade. So by not changing and staying at current levels, everything would mean revert. Yeah, that's compelling. I, I would say that the, you know, for literally the past 40 years, anyone saying the next 10 years for stocks is going to be flat their track record was very poor. I, you know, there's no investor on the planet Earth who I have more respect yeah. than Stanley Druckenmiller. But I think I think he would admit that you know, what I said is true, is that it's, it's, it's been a very bad prediction to make for the past 40 years. It, yes, it could become true. But as you said, he's a macro investor who changes his mind very frequently. Yeah, you know, in other words, in two years ago, it probably was a good thing to buy extremely speculative, unprofitable technology companies. And now it's not, you know, you got to change your mind. So in two years, Sandra Miller could be buying, you know, an incredibly large amount of stocks uh, because he changed his mind. But someone listening to that still is like, oh, but Stan said this. And then they miss out on eight years of gains. So it's important to, to uh, point that out. But yeah, tons of tons of respect for Stanley. He's a, he's a legend. Mike, uh, do we have time for like to me to quickly go through this table at the, at the last uh, thing for the FOMC? Let me pull. Let me pull it back up here. So yes, I'm extremely confident, very confident. Mike cannot say how confident I am that it's going to be 75 basis points, and thus that would say, oh, so risk assets rally. Should we buy calls on S and P 500? Should we buy calls on Ethereum? That is a plausible thing based on what I said. However, what could be what could Powell do or say that would be hawkish so that risk assets perform poorly on Wednesday, even? The, even if it's going to be 75 basis points. Well, I was thinking about this today. I think it's tough for Powell to say something in terms of narrative, in terms of metaphor, in terms of language, in terms of vibe that is more hawkish than Jackson Hole. Yes, it's possible, but like how much can you, you know, talk about how much you like Paul Volcker? It's it really there's there's like a it's, it's like QE where once you do so much, so like doing twice as much is not going to have that much, you know, there, there's um um uh, what's it called? What's it called? Uh, 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 when it returns, not re- returns. When it's like the more you do, uh, what's diminishing it returns. Diminishing returns. Thank you. It's diminishing returns. All right. Um, but what could he actually say? He could commit to, you know, QT for the next four years, regardless of if you know the Earth gets hit by an asteroid. Uh, he could say that. He could commit so that he could commit commit on balance sheet. He could commit on, uh, interest rates. He could say we are not. Uh, cutting. We're we're not cutting unless an asteroid hits the Earth or something like that. But we are extremely firmly committed. And yeah, in which case you would see the 2023 like after April futures sell off and interest rates would rise, uh, which would be pretty pretty bearish for the market. Another thing, the final thing that I think matter. Not one of the final things that I'm looking at is the summary of economic projections, which did not come out in the July FOMC meeting, but did come out in June. So. What we're looking at here is the uh, forecast of the FOMC for core PCE. They don't look at CPI or what they track is PCE, not CPI for inflation. Core is minus food and energy. Funny because food and energy is, of course, the most core thing of life, but that, that's what it is. Mm. So if these median core PCE projections for 2023 
are going to be uh, uh, priced up away from 2.7 or from 2.5 to 3.5 on the range. Um, that is something I will have my eye on. Obviously, two, uh, 2022 will be marked up a little bit just because, but but that's sort of already baked in the cake. Uh, so 2023 is sort of how the Fed is is pricing. So if that's unchanged, I would say that's uh, somewhat dovish. If it's higher, I would say that's somewhat hawkish. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I like what you're doing here. Uh, I will also lay out you know, some, something else that would make me sort of change my mind. Not not even that the scenario that I laid out was just the base case. I just think it's, I, I'm actually starting to, I want to start a trend here. You know, it's like be the man in the mirror, change the man. I, I'm just under, the, I feel like I've been under this deluge of just negative content. I just feel the need to just voice the fact, right? That things actually could be better than they appear if you solely consume Twitter and paid attention to the media. So that that's, that's why I like Juliet's explanation for how we could actually achieve a soft landing right uh but the other thing that i will say is we you know the flying the ointment so to speak is is just more geopolitical strife right i mean that 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 was the thing that nobody really saw coming i know some people saw it coming most people didn't see coming until it happened right which was the whole russia versus ukraine crisis it doesn't it doesn't necessarily seem to me operating with the caveat that I probably have 3% of the available information out there that the US necessarily wants a quick end to this crisis, right? We continue to support, uh, you know, supply munitions to Ukraine, whether or not you think that's a morally good thing, we are supplying the munitions and seemingly drawing out the conflict, right? So it doesn't seem to my, you know, five-year-old middle of the bell curve geopolitical brain that we are you know, it's it's in the interest of of Washington to end the conflict quickly. I don't know that to be true, but the other thing that could happen is is the thing that everyone's been talking about forever, which is Taiwan, basically, um, and every other you know sort of conspiracy or or whatever idea aside. I find it very hard to believe that you know China's expressed interest in Taiwan, obviously reunification. I'm sure they're at least watching the Ukraine Russia conflict play out and taking lessons from it in one regard or another. That doesn't mean they're going to do anything about it. Could Maybe they won't do anything for a long period of time. Maybe they'll never do anything. But I'm sure they're watching this conflict play out. Mm, definitely. Mike, I know so, you got to go. Can we do some quick plugs? The plugs, we got to yeah. do plugs. Okay. okay. So Digital Asset Summit last week in New York, it was incredible. But if you missed out, don't worry. There's another one in London, 17th and 18th, is it? Yes, sir. All right, yes, there we go. And I believe you can use the code guidance two fifty. But you know, this is on the margin. So, Mike, what's your code that people can use? I'm gonna we're we're doing Mike two fifty again. Mike uh, two fifty. So this is you know you did win on the on on leading up to DAS. So got a very strong audience there that that love you, Jack, and I'll always root for you. But in this instance, don't use guidance two fifty. <laughs> use Mike two fifty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every other every other instance, I'm supporting you. But competition, baby. Yeah. Uh, no, seriously, this is gonna be great. We've been doing London for a number of years different you know it, it, it is interesting to see because obviously there's a lot of continuity between new york as a financial hub london as a financial hub but there are different sectors that are important to london different points of view represented over there and just a really really great very strong community so if you're in crypto if you're in finance uh and you want to get with a gathering of like-minded people that's london's a really good option right and uh mike we're very close to a hundred thousand followers on youtube and i was reading uh, late last night, how to get more subscribers, and it's to tease future content so people feel like they need to subscribe to miss out. So, in that spirit, uh, here are some guests who will be on Forward Guidance over the next month. Professor Evaluation, Aswath Demodorant. You ever wonder what equity risk premium means? What how things are valued? He is the person to explain it. That will air shortly. 
Peter Crane, expert on money markets with fan favorite Joseph Wang will be coming on. Rory Johnson, commodity expert. Jacob Shapiro, geopolitical uh, expert. We're about talking about Taiwan. George Noble, the man who worked with uh, Peter Lynch. He is launching an ETF. He will be coming on hopefully uh, soon to talk about that. Uh, Harris Kupperman is coming on. Jim Bianco. Uh, uh, let's see. Lynn Alden. Uh, uh, Daniel, D- Daniel DiMartino Booth. Folks, that's just that's just forward guidance on, on the margin, boiler room, macro trading floor. It's unbelievable. So you got to subscribe. I don't want you to hit the subscribe button. I want you to smash it. Mike, let's uh, let's let's and, uh, final. I'm not, not going to do any better than that. I'm not going to do any better than that, Jack. That was excellent. These are always fun. Forward marginal guidance. Uh, big fan. Sweet. We get to do this together. So thanks for coming on the show, buddy. Talk to you soon.